you're listening to the part 2 of episode 7 of let's get uncomfortable thank you in the finance section i would directly like to pick up from where sanjana left off and um, talk about a report recently published by the imf uh, or the international monetary fund last week the report has forecasted that india's per capita gdp is going to fall below bangladesh this fall will make bangladesh the fourth re- uh, richest nation in the south asian uh, region of uh, region including economies like india pakistan sri lanka maldives and bangladesh itself i just want to say that this fall uh, of india below bangladesh is not alarming because it's it was a clear trend while for the past few years we have been growing our, and we have been the world's largest emerging economy bangladesh bangladesh's growth has been slow but steady and this pandemic has just made it easier for them to leapfrog india in uh, per capita gdp this was just one indicator where they have leapfrogged us but other social indicators like happiness uh, gender development infant mortality or hunger bangladesh has been above us for almost the past 5 years so it's a clear trend and we just we just can't say that this is an anomaly or a thing that was caused by the covid-19 pandemic maybe it just accelerated the pace uh, with which bangladesh has surpassed us but it's it's not a thing where it's it's just not a yearly thing bangladesh was already forecast uh, forecast to pass us by 2025 the pandemic just made it easier and the contraction of 10.3% in india's economy made it worse for us now what is interesting is that this growth of bangladesh might not be a bad thing for india in the sense that uh with the growing influence of china uh india can really make use of the uh, recent growth in bangladesh's economy and make it a strong economic partner and have good uh, diplomatic relations with the country uh its relations with nepal bhutan and bangladesh can really show india's position in this region and and it can may it can be a threat to china in the sense uh, that its growing influence might just be curtail and might not impact india so much and we we just have to wait and watch what happens uh bangladesh celebrates its uh, golden jubilee of um, of independence prime minister modi is set to attend this uh, uh, the celebration with the uh, with bangladesh and it remains to see if he brings up this topic with the prime minister of bangladesh and they take our diplomatic relations forward instead of where they are right now so yeah that's that's all i would want to cover on that topic and i would like to uh, pass it on to sanjana now thanks kostav basically now i will be covering india's v-shaped recovery which has been quoted by our finance minister nirmala sitaraman so our union minister of finance and corporate affairs nirmala sitaraman attended the plenary meeting of the international monetary and financial committee that is the imfc the minister the ministerial level committee of the international monetary fund imf through video conference now sitaraman in her intervention at the meeting briefly outlined the measures under atmanirbhar bharat package to foster a quick and a more robust economy recovery in india she has said that a v shaped pattern of recovery is being seen in a se- in several high frequency indicators driven by various measures taken by the government to revive the economic growth hit hard by the outbreak of the covid-19 uh, pandemic 
she has also said that several low income and developing countries are confronted with the challenge to confront and ensure livelihood for millions slipping below the poverty line she has outlined measures under atmanirbhar bharat package to foster a quick and a more robust economic recovery in india so uh, she has mentioned that the v shaped pattern of recovery is being seen in several high frequency indicators including manufacturing where pmi that reached the highest level in last 8 years in september 2020 presenting a strong recovery prospect for the manufacturing sector now to stimulate consumer spending she said measures worth 10 billion us dollars have been announced recently and earlier this week the government announced rupees 73000 crore package including advance payment of a part of wages to central government employees and cash in lieu of leave travel concession to stimulate consumer demand and investment in the economy damaged by the coronavirus pandemic that's it from me and now i'm passing it on to abhishek thank you sanjana for sharing something very enlightening and as you can see guys you don't see these news on a news channel they are busy reporting sushant singh rajput and finding more things there rather than doing this so so that so thank you sanjana and kostub and now i would like to introduce my article for the finance section which i found really interesting was that you know how covid 19 is providing fuel to the educational tech sector now as you see this year alone education indian educational startups have raised billions of dollars in investments and even their valuations are soaring now byju's hit 10.8 billion in valuation and its usd dollars and even unacademy recently turned unicorn at 1.5 billion valuation and it's still and it this is also dollars and dollars and we have upgrades co-founder who's ronnie screwwala he's a former producer in the hindi film industry a media tycoon and also upgrades co-founder as i said and he believes that the covid-19 pandemic has pushed the learning to the online platform because colleges and schools are shut and due to that the startups have seen a surge in their user base and not even the students and not only the students and teachers but also the parents are getting comfortable with this digital platform like this approach to education he said he said that you know what should have happened in 4 years in the educational tech sector is now happening in 2 years because of the pandemic which is acting as a catalyst i would also like to bring forth some stats and numbers that it's like uh, it's like this educational startups have seen their numbers staggering by the minute and in march alone Baiju saw six million new students access their free lessons on its platform. Not only Baiju's, but an academy recorded one billion watch minutes on their videos. And a tech startup called Topper saw hundred percent growth in their hundred percent growth in their free user engagement in March. And these are the numbers that are from the free users who are accessing it for the first time and ta- and taking a part in this. Uh, revolution now what is the reason for this as you know schools and colleges are shut and due to their reopening dates being extended time and time again people are switching to the online platform the digital platform because they because it is convenient and it is providing them a much better quality of education as compared to what they receive in their schools and colleges like the the pandemic has forced them to switch their habit and switch and turn to the uh, digital model 
and further talking about this comparing the data of 2019 and 2020 in the educational tech sector in 2020 the ed tech sector received 700 million dollars compared to 150 million dollars in 2019 the entire 2019 was just 150 million and if we see the stats 2020 resulted in a 4x jump in funding and also a 2x jump in the number of deals which are partnerships acquisitions and 50% of the 2020 funding was received in the months of jan and feb now as you can see the companies and startups that are involved in the edtech sector assumed that this would happen and took precautionary steps so this is a very good thing that we are seeing and even how corona uh, how corona virus has affected this funding also i would like to dig deep a little more in that after the march lockdown things went so drastically for the edtech sector that in the market comparing edtech sector to the other verticals it received more funding than travel and real estate and edtech sector keeps dominating further and further and now talking about it more the funding raised in these months was led by vedantu now vedantu is a digital platform where tutors and teachers can give one to one video lessons to users that have subscribed to them that have enrolled for their classes so teachers can schedule their class they can introduce that they are teaching this subject so vedantu raised 100 million and it was followed by a startup called springboard which which earned 31 million now covid 19 has not only brought these startups to their forefront but they are also attracting users and investors which will eventually help india in their educational field in their educational sector now i also want to mention what this one thing that you know all the startups are very different in the in the educational tech sector itself there are startups that offer digital educational services for pre primary students there are services for grade 1 to grade 12 and there are also uh, apps and startups that cater to the college coaching national examinations preparation and upskilling which is like spread out through many domains and it's attracting a very and it's attracting a huge variety of investors as well now i would like to bring the co- i would like to bring a quote from ronnie screwala again uh, he said that whether we like it or not in india the socio economic reasons force people to take up a job very early in their lives and therefore they skip education more as a necessity and not as a choice and that's where i think online will substitute for where you can continue to work learn and get a degree now i think he's correctly put it because the online education and digital platforms are providing a choice and they are also letting us you know uh, adjust our education and acquire education on our own terms and i would also like to bring that you know he ronnie screwala also says that you know people who live very far away from the country's aspirational colleges have an opportunity through remote access the, now there is a business opportunity here the problem is we the he and i quote ronnie screwala again the problem we want to solve is lifelong learning as we believe that education is no longer an event and in every 3 4 years everyone will need in some form or the other upgrade themselves and they can they can't take a year off they can't necessarily stop stop their working life he said indirectly he is trying to say that you know educational 
sectors are a good way where people can use us can educate themselves and plus get it at their own time and convenience and also work side by side because of the indian socio economic conditions so that's it from my side now i would like sanjana to continue what she has uh, she is going to bring a more greener side of our finance in her next article thank you thanks abhishek that was really informative and something really that had to be brought to light now i will be covering something really very interesting so basically india needs to increase massively its investment in green finance which is required primarily to fight climate change now as we all know india is struggling to lift millions out of poverty and it's going to be hit harder than most of the nations from increasing storms heat waves and floods which together put at risk about 4.5% of the country's estimated gdp than almost any other nation from increasing storms heat waves and floods which together put 4.5% of the country's gdp which can be monetarily stated as 2.8 trillion us dollars now a recent report has revealed that against the 170 billion us dollars per year required investment by india to finance its climate action the total green finance over the last few years stood at a little over 10% us that's uh, about uh, 19 billion us dollars on average across all sectors and let me tell you this is a very trivial figure like we are nowhere close to the goal where we are supposed to be now the good news is that the green investments have outpaced india's gdp growth and this has been recorded during 2016 to 17 and 2017 to 18 periods now the study looked at the nature and volume of green financial flows in the country and it has noted that total green finance flows in india for 2016 to 2018 were 17 billion dollars and 21 billion dollars in the respective economic years now the report didn't map pollution abatement activities biodiversity agriculture forestry and other land use and adaptation finance now the gdp of india grew at an average rate of 7.2% between 2016 to 17 and 2017 to 2018 and the track investments that we are talking about right now suggest an increase of 24% growth this definitely indicates that green investments have the potential for driving economic growth of the country which hasn't been given much importance until now now it has been stated by intended nationally determined contribution which is the indc that 2.5 trillion us dollars is needed from 2015 to 2030 which approximately works out to 170 billion dollars a year which i have previously stated and we need this for fighting climate action now climate action can be defined as anything that is done by the country to tackle climate change and its impacts now this can include steps like reducing greenhouse gas emissions and integrate climate change measures into national policies now the climate policy in the initiative cpi has been working on a think tank and this works on energy land use and climate change issues which have been emphasized as the green sectors and this includes renewable energy and energy efficiency and low carbon trans, uh, transport and these are helping to drive economic growth in india and this study has also been supported by the shakti sustainable energy foundation 
Now it is encouraging to know that India's support to unlock private investment has helped, but we also see much more needs to be done. Now in both years, 2016 to 17 and 2017 to 2018, domestic private investors contributed the largest share, and this is 63% and 51% respectively of about rupees 139,000 crores, and this is over. 18 billion US dollars, which was through debt and equity. While public finance sources have supported this investment through a variety of financial instruments, now the domestic public green finance expenditure by the government and its agencies totaled rupees 71,000, uh, 71,000 crores, which is approximately 9 billion US dollars for the two years. Clearly, again, this is not enough, and a lot more needs to be done. A recent report has also mentioned that there is increasing data on air pollution emissions, green job creation in India, but there is little to no comprehensive information available on whether or not the financial sector is keeping up with the pace for India's green economic development goals, or which sectors are being financed adequately or underserved. Now, this information would be extremely invaluable for policy and investment leaders. Working to scale up investments for sustainable and transformational impact. Now, it's also uh, this is a very interesting fact. India's energy sector is one of the fastest growing in the world, and it has been attracting substantial investments meeting the country's climate goals, which will require, as I quote, proportionate transformative investment increases at sectoral level. Now, for instance, renewable energy spending for the first time exceeded the investments in fossil fuels, fossil fuel-based uh, power generation, and this is a huge victory because this has always been the goal of transforming into a low-carbon economy. Now, in 2017, the total investment in renewable energy projects in India surpassed fossil fuels for the first time, and This has been really amazing since strong financial support and timely policy interventions from the government of India have played a crucial role in accelerating the growth of the country's renewable energy sector. But now, ever ever since the slowdown created by COVID-19, government will have to find new and alternative ways to finance the transition and incentivize private sector participation to scale up investments for a sustainable and transformational impact. Here is a little paradox which you would find interesting. This is the uh, this is the fact that the record low solar power tariffs that drove investments in 2016 and 2017 now pose a threat to its own growth. On another hand, we are also seeing that sustainable transfer, transportation and electrical uh, vehicles, which are the EVs. Are other key areas which have reported that annual finance directed to sustainable transportation projects increased by 43 percent in 2017 to 18 from 2016 to 17, and this was mainly driven by capital expenditure on uh, rapid transit systems, which is MRTS projects by the central and state governments, and the sale of electrical three vehicle uh, three wheelers by the private residential and commercial segments. Now, since we are in a post-COVID uh, period, not technically post-COVID, but as we transition into a post-COVID time, people are still going to be skeptical and uh, of public transportation, and the automobile industry is now not really in a good shape. So, what the report suggests is that uh, it's a good time to start investing in two-wheeler EVs, 
since people would want to have their own transportation and since they would want to maintain as much social distancing as possible so this is a really interesting opportunity to uh, for this sector to pivot with the right support mechanisms and if you are able to provide an interesting business model and incentivize the purchase of evs which are two uh, two wheeler evs it would go a long way in accelerating uh, electric vehicles and we should definitely not lose this opportunity now electric mobility is a crucial sector for india to show advances it is making in energy sectors beyond power and if all goes well and if we are following this plan properly and in, uh, increasing our annual investments to 170 billion us dollars we can hopefully follow uk's footsteps and transform the indian economy into a low carbon free economy by 2035 and years to hoping thank you sanjana for sharing such an insightful article now i would like to share with you all a story that i found on this platform called finshots where you can consume financial news and market news so this story is about the manapuram finance limited and how it's flourishing in the lockdown despite of all businesses suffering in it so between march and june 2020 Manapuram Finance Limited's revenue grew by 27% and profits by 38% compared to their same last quarter and what is the reason for it it's because their business has a simple model they take your loan they take your gold and then they disburse loans there isn't a lot of paperwork it's not time consuming and plus there's gold backing your loan at all times and 70% of mfl's business is dependent on their gold loans it contributes their business and why do you think it's working so much it's because it's an nbfc and it's very popular in our rural and regional areas two thirds of india's gold holdings are concentrated in these areas and since people are having a hard time suffering because they are getting laid off they keep to they struggle to get finance and the only option for them is to avail a gold is to avail a gold loan that that will help them and this is what they are precisely doing and there's also another point to be noted that the gold prices are trading at record level high in the market and it's also an excellent store of value and it's universally accepted as a solid medium of exchange so that's why large people turn to these uh, gold loans and another benefit of this is as the value of this collateral or which the loan explodes customers can pledge gold and seek a higher loan amount simply due to the reason of the rise in gold gold prices ever since the pandemic took center stage all the traders shopkeepers and small businessmen have relied on this price increase so that they can borrow money for their gold it's been a life saver for them Manapuram even offers customers the ability to avail a new loan if you desire. If you've borrowed the monies quite a few months ago and you're expected to repay now, you can simply repledge your loan or re-re-loan your gold to your existing account and get the money and get a loan. But there's a negative side to it as well. What if the value of gold falls and the value of the collateral? then the gap between the collateral kept by manapuram and the loans will shorten which will make which will make their lives harder so yeah that's this that's about with this story thank you okay so after finishing with our finance section 
now we want to move on towards the socio political section what's happening in the society of india and so so to start off with the socio political section i would like to bring to notice and very drastic thing that has been happening in india it's continue it has started since the lockdown started and it's continuing till now i'm talking about the forest clearance projects that government have cleared and you know signed and approved left right and center and i'm going to talk about one of the clearance projects that have been granted by the government which is the clearing of goa's molem national park and bhagwan mahavir wildlife sanctuary now there were three projects that are granted in these areas the first project is the national highway project which connects the state of goa and karnataka it's about 153 kilometers and 13 kilometer of this highway starts from the border of goa and it falls within the bhagwan mahavir wildlife sanctuary and molem national park it's being carried out by the national highway authority of india and pwd in goa now the proposal says that they need to make they need to extend the existing highway and make it into a four lane highway now making it a four lane highway they will have they will have to clear the untouched parts of the wildlife sanctuary and national park the proposal involves the cutting of 12097 trees and the diversion of about 31 hectares of protected forest areas the estimated cost of this project is 59400 lakhs and the objective of this proposal is to meet the increased demands of traffic in the area and to reduce travel time fuel requirements and pollution now the second project it was approved in december 2019 it is the project of castle rock kulum railway doubling this is a part of a larger railway project which has been undertaken by the rail nikas rail vikas nigam limited it is about 35 345 kilometers long and this railway line passes through the mahavir sanctuary in two parts out of which one passes from castle rock to kulum now castle rock is a forest which is also part of the dandeli anshi tiger reserve in karnataka and the forest between the goa karnataka border also fall within the bhagwan mahavir wildlife sanctuary and as per the uh, application of this approval this project involves the clearing of 20758 trees now the third project was granted on april 2020 it's a uh, karnataka goa transmission line uh, for electricity which starts from the narendra village in karnataka and it ends at a and it ends at zeldem in goa now this project is carried out by the tamnar transmission project limited now 3.15 kilometers of this transmission line will run straight through bhagwan mahavir wildlife sanctuary and uh, it will require a diversion of 11.54 hectares of area which is wildlife sanctuary area which is a forested area and it also includes the cutting of 4000 and 4139 trees and the cost of this project is 5.58 crores now why and how are these being cleared i'll tell you right now like this is like since it's been happening in lockdown the government is approving many foreign clearance projects one of the other examples is the dehin patkai elephant sanctuary in assam which was approved during the lockdown it includes the clearing of some part of this forested area and building a coal in building a coal mine due to which many people are very concerned about this and another ex- and now as we are talking about the wildlife sanctuary and the national park in goa they are the largest protected area in goa bhagwan mahavir sanctuary 
wildlife sanctuary in Molem, Goa. It is spread across 24,000 hectares. It is one of the most protected areas in Goa, forested protected areas. It is a part of the Western Ghats. It's rich in uh, flora and fauna. And on June 4, a group of 149 scientists, academicians, conservationists, artists, allied professionals wrote to the Indian Environment Minister Prakash Jawadkar stating that you are stating that this is a treasure trove of flora and fauna and it's a very big part of the Goan forested area and it's also adjoining the Kali Tiger Reserve in Karnataka which is a tiger corridor. Now they said that this forested area is a home to almost 721 plant species, 253 bird species, 219 butterfly species, 70 mammal species, 75 ant species, 45 reptile species and the list goes on and on. Now the road and the railway track which will be constructed will cause barriers in the mortality rate of these wild animals and it will also lead to a higher interaction, higher violent interaction between humans and these wild animals which can lead to accidents. Now Nandini Velo, who is an independent researcher and also one of the people who signed this letter said that there was a virtual meeting that was held with the members of the National Board of Wildlife who couldn't even access the maps of these forested areas for making a decision. But our Environment Minister Prakash Jawadkar tweeted it out that it has been cleared indicating the approval of these projects. Now, she, now after this, a group of 291 scientists, experts, environmentalists, activists and former members of this committee of National Board of Wildlife wrote to Javadkar expressing their concern for this forest and the wildlife clearances that has been virtually cleared in COVID-19. So they held, they literally held a virtual conference and they approved these projects. Now according to the Forest Conservation Act of 1980, it, is, it supports conservation of these forested areas very heavily. And if there are any projects that are to be uh, deployed in these areas, it has to go through six different levels of scrutiny which is to be done by the state and central boards of forestry. And after this, the project is rejected or accepted, which in this case has been totally avoided by the government and the central regulatory bodies. So that's it from my side. Now I would like to pass it on to Kostov, who will be talking more about what's happening in the other parts of our country. Uh, thank you, Abhishek. Uh, I, just, I also want to talk about the way our wildlife and the forested areas have been endangered, but I will be taking you to the Northeast region, which is also one of the most neglected regions in our country. Now, what happened during the lockdown in the Northeast region was that there is an oil field known as the Babjan oil field in Assam. Uh, there was an oil and gas leak here back in May, which still hasn't been contained. It's been more than a hundred days and now it has started burning and the fire is still, has still not been contained. This field is actually located near the Dibru Saikova National Park in Assam. The national park is home to endangered species such as the Gangetic Dolphin, the Tigers, Capped Langurs, and some Gibbons. Uh, the location of this oil field makes it, uh, makes it even more important to pay attention to this uh, gas leak. Uh, this oil field has also been in the news previously because Oil India Limited, which controls this gas field, uh, did not take the appropriate environmental clearances for further expansion and exploration activities here. Uh, no mandatory public hearing was uh, conducted before they began drilling to operate these oil, well, oil wells. 
the eco-sensitive zone of the national park was reduced in size uh, at the request of Oil India in order for the well to be established. In 2013, National Board of Wildlife criticized the government for ratifying breach of wildlife norms after Oil India began operations in the eco-sensitive zone of the national park. The effect of this uh, oil, oil and gas leak and the drilling uh, activities has been immense. Around 1,600 families were evacuated to a relief camp. Uh, additionally, state, state Pollution Control Board stated that the leak and fire affected agricultural crops such as the bamboo and a dead gangetic dolphin was found covered in oil. The Wildlife Division noted that due to the immediate rain after the leak, local water bodies had been contaminated uh, with the oil and natural gas. The Forest Department has asked the company uh, Oil India Limited to account for its action after reports of the impact emerged uh, about, uh, from the leak. There's a clear pattern of a wildlife being endangered due to uh, industry expansion and development. While these two aspects are really important for our economy, we cannot ignore the environmental impact they have. So it, it just remains to see what happens now. There's a team of uh, three foreigners that has reached the oil well, check on the status of the burning and to help contain it. Let's just hope for the best. And now I would like to pass it on to Sanjana to inform us more about what she has. Thank you, Costa. Now, I'll be continuing it from what Costa was talking about, which was endangerment of uh, wildlife. But I will be talking on a more global basis. Ever since the pandemic broke out, all the countries have been in a rat race to come out with an effective uh, antidote for the virus. And uh, one of the key things that we need to understand here is that the development of certain COVID-19 vaccines could actually lead to slaughter of um, 500,000 sharks. And let me tell you why. So an ingredient in some vaccines is folene, an organic compound which is mainly found in the liver of deep sea sharks. Now squalene is used as an adjuvant in vaccines which is now an ingredient that helps to create a stronger immune response in individuals which receive the said vaccine. So the shark conservation group Shark Allies estimate that 3,000 sharks are required to produce one ton of squalene. And in order to vaccinate the world's population of 7 billion people, around 500,000 sharks would need, it, would need to be killed. Now, this is assuming each person has administered two doses of the vaccine. The shark ally stated that should spoiling be so sourced from sharks, the global shark population could see a significant loss. Now, spoiling is typically sourced from deep sea sharks and this is due to high concentrations found in the liver oil of these sharks. Now to exacerbate this, the deep, sea, uh, the deep sea sharks like the basking shark and gulper shark are classified as vulnerable already. The general shark population is also, also already threatened by a host of other issues such as fishing and shark fins. And not only for spoiling, but also the biggest consumer of the compound. Now the shark allies believe that 2.7 million sharks li shark lives are being taken every year for just cosmetics. And the conservation group is thus advocating that squalene should be produced using more sustainable sources such as plants or fungi. Scientists still need to confirm this, but we do have some direction and you know we can come up with a plan which doesn't require slaughter of 500,000 sharks. Now, Telegraph has reported that biotechnology, California-based company, 
Amiris has been producing synthetic squalene for their cosmetic products for years. Now they are hoping to apply this technology in the vaccine industry to reduce their reliance on shark fishing. That was it from my side and I would like to pass it on to Abhishek. So thank you, Sanjana, for bringing up such a point. Now, in this valid, so it is such an important period, like the race to produce a vaccine is currently in full force, but it is also having some, uh, it is also having an adverse effect on our biodiversity as well. And now I would like to take, you take everyone back to India, towards North India, where a very uh, controversial thing is happening. It is because of the recent farmers' bills, which was proved to be very controversial because of the backlash it faced by the farmers' community. And I'm especially talking about how Punjab is waging a war against these farmers' bills. Now, what happened on October 1, that farmers' union started protesting after the government released their farm bills and they, thre and they threatened to boycott corporate houses and corporate companies Primarily the, the ones that are owned by Mukesh Ambani and Gautam Adani. Then a week later they started protesting and they, they started protesting at the Reliance petrol pumps and literally blocked the entrances which caused these petrol pump sales to dip by 50% and Reliance nearly has 85 petrol pumps in Punjab. Now the unions that threatened to boycott corporate houses, it has transformed, this boycott has transformed into a large scale economic and social movement. And to the extent where people are throwing away their geo SIM cards, they are protesting at the Reliance shopping malls at Adani projects and Walmart, Best Price stores, toll plazas and other petrol pumps also. Now, one of, now one of the media houses called The Wire uh, interviewed Pankaj Bansal, who was one of the partners of Reliance petrol pump in Bhatinda. He said, and I quote, the Bharatiya Kisan Union members have been sitting on protest outside our petrol pump from October 1. Our sales have dipped to zero and employees were sitting idle. Though the farmers have boycotted our petrol pump, we have we already declared our support to their cause. In fact, out of the 18 employees, 15 were sons of local farmers only. And in another and in another interview done by the wire with Sanjeev Jindal, who is also a D, who's also runs these petrol pumps from Chandigarh to Patiala, he said, and I quote, it's been over a week since my petrol pump has been lying closed. By boycotting our petrol pumps, the farmers are causing a direct loss to dealers like us, not the owners. They have not even taken any permission from the administration to hold a protest. Neither they're, uh, neither they're following any social distancing norms, nor they're wearing masks in COVID-19 times, which is putting us at a very grave risk. Though we understand their agitation, their way of protesting is wrong. And another uh, Reliance dealer called Vivek Sharma said that there he said that the petrol, like the petrol pump sales have dipped 50% and they have been a soft target of all these farmers union protests. Now, not only this happened, but the farmers unions are very angry and they are so angry that they walked out of a former meeting that was supposed to happen with the Ag Union Agriculture Secretary Sanjay Agarwal in Delhi. Now they shouted slogans such as Modi Sarkar Murdabad and Bar Sarkar Murdabad. Now these farmers reunion also tore copies of the farmers bills and they said that the Modi government has double standards and they also wanted 
uh, and they also wanted the presence of the union agricultural minister narendra singh tomar for the meeting who was absent now this was supposed to be the first formal meeting between the farmers union and the central government which was supposed to be in delhi but the farmers walked out of this meeting and protested in protested in in the premises itself now it was they heavily relied on the they heavily wanted uh, the union minister tomar to be present they demanded it and they also wanted that if they want if the government wants to hold a meeting with them they need to bring tomar or narendra modi for the meeting and the central government said that they will uh, give them a response back as soon as the demands have been met so yeah that's it from my side and now i would like to take it for now i would like cost to take it forward uh thank you abhishek again so i came across an interesting article by the print uh that describes the plight of kerala and punjab in this covid 19 times kerala which was regarded as the champion of india's fight against covid 19 and received international recognition for, uh has seen a sudden rise in covid 19 cases where it had 499 cases in may now kerala has more than 3 lakh cases and the positivity and the positivity rate of 13% the main issue uh, with kerala is due to the overcrowded nature of its cities the officials have agreed to community trans- transmission in small pockets of the state adding to this factor uh, the fact that villages in kerala are spread over large areas making it difficult to identify where one city starts and where one ends has has caused an administrative difficulty for these covid-19 fighters also the high rate of diabetes in the state does not help it uh, due to this covid uh, covid-19 has had a surge in kerala and now kerala seems to have one of the highest uh, positivity rates and the second worst performing state in the country however there is a positive positive news for kerala in the sense that the fatality rate is only 0.35% one of the lowest in the country uh this is because the Ker- the kerala government has given up on containing the virus while their focus now is on minimizing deaths they have stopped screening people arriving from other states via roads so clearly the focus has shifted and we just hope that they do their best in at least minimizing the deaths on the other hand i also want to talk about punjab Punjab has been the worst performing state in India. It has a fatality rate of 3.3 uh, 3.13% and 25% of the patients that enter hospitals with covid die. Uh according to the chief minister of Punjab the main reason for this is that people are ignorant and still don't believe that the virus exists. There is lack of awareness among them. It does not help that they admit themselves late in the hospital after detection of covid. well there has been some positive news on the covid front not not for punjab or kerala individually but for india as a whole india for the first time recorded less than 50000 cases uh, recorded in a day and it's been progress since the start of the lockdown so here's hoping for the best now that concludes the socio political section thank you for listening to the part 2 of episode 7 of let's get uncomfortable be sure to check out the last part which features legal news thank you